Hi friends, welcome to Why We Care, the podcast where together we explore our relationship with the natural world and learn how we can restore our connection with it. I'm your host Tiffen, I grew up in the French part of Switzerland and now live in London where I work in the environmental space, helping people and organizations connect the dots for biodiversity. Over the past few years, I've come to realize and understand that the reason why we care and feel such deep hurt when we see a forest being cut down or a whale being killed is because nature is where we come from. It's our home and it's who we are and it is so central to our balance and well-being. And yet we've become so disconnected from it. Most of us in the Western world living in concrete buildings, walking on concrete roads, living our lives away from the natural world. But I really do think that we need that connection with nature now more than ever. So this podcast is all about finding ways to restore that connection while protecting and regenerating the ecosystems around us. In today's episode, I'm chatting with Joycelyn Longdon, a PhD researcher at Cambridge University and the founder of Climate in Color, an education platform dedicated to making climate conversations more accessible and diverse for the climate curious. Joycelyn works at the intersection of technology, ecology, sociology and racial justice. So there was a lot to cover in this episode. She describes bioacoustics and the technologies she works with for her PhD research as Shazam for nature, which I think is fascinating. She explained how by listening to the sounds of nature, we're able to monitor the health of ecosystems and enhance conservation work. We also spoke about the ethical implications of technology and how it can be used in service of nature and people rather than against them. Another really important aspect of her work is participatory design and she explained how she's working very closely with local communities to reduce racial and climate injustice by involving them in the process, getting their insights and feedback. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider sharing it with a friend and following at Why We Care Podcast on Instagram for updates. Make sure you also follow at Climate in Color and subscribe to Joyce Lynn's newsletter to learn more about her work. I'll include all the links in the show notes. I hope you're feeling comfortable and relaxed. Take a moment to feel grounded and clench your jaw. Drop your shoulders away from your ears. Take a deep breath in. Long breath out. And let's dive in. Thank you for caring and sending you lots of love. Hi, Joycelyn. Thank you so much for being here today. The first thing I'd like to ask you is, what's your story? Um, yeah, I guess I'll keep it kind of focused time-wise to kind of my work in the environmental space. And that probably dates back to when I was around 12. I went to Ireland on a family holiday and up until that point, I'd grown up in a council flat that was um, in like zone six of London. So like for people who don't know London, that's like sort of the <laughs> outermost edge of London. So I was really lucky, you know, even though, you know, I grew up in a council flat, it was actually not very high storied and we had a brook behind it and we had lots of fields and things like nearby my school had a field behind it my school had a conservation area so all of that was like just normal every day for me um I didn't know that that was a thing at the time like I was just a kid just like mm -hmm. that's what my house is um but when I went to Ireland it was the first time that I really like noticed the natural world and felt like bowled over by its beauty um not that I didn't love where I grew up but it we were we went to ancient forests and we went to the giant's causeway and it was just an immense 
kind of scene and environment that I'd never experienced before. And that felt really magical to me. And I think that's kind of where my like the little flame inside of me that loves to do this work, even if I'm not always in, you know, um, environments like that, that's where it comes from. And so when I was 16, I went to my first um, like environmental march, climate march in London um, and I hated it. I really did not enjoy it. Um, for one, I think we were some of the youngest people there. We had to s- skip school naughtily to go. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, for one, I don't think it was a place. They didn't feel like a place for young people. And of course, lots of other young people went and must have had great times. But it also didn't feel like a place for young black people. Um, there were not really any groups of black people. And I felt that at that time, the movement was made up of mainly people who cared only about animals and quite like distinctly about animals. Um, and not that I didn't, I don't care about animals, but it was a, it's a very different type of environmentalism to what I had felt, say, in my heart um, was the motivation for, for me going to that um, mm-hmm. march. And so I actually sort of like, that was the end of my environmental <laughs> like foray I was like I'm gonna leave this anyway my community is being like killed and harmed in the UK and in the US and so I kind of went you know all guns blazing into racial justice work and so I did a lot of racial justice um, journalism I worked with Galdem um I I um, spoke with and amplified stories of communities who were supporting the after um the after events of Grenfell um, I created a creative studio for black and brown creatives who were working on race issues. So I just kind of threw myself into that um, whilst I was doing my undergrad, which was in, in something completely different in astrophysics. So I still had that like love and awe for this world and the universe around it. Um, but I hadn't yet found a way to do that, like, as I do now, I guess, for my job. Um, I was just finding the cracks to do my racial justice work, you know, in between all of my academic work. Mm-hmm. Just through that experience, through doing lots of reading and lots of writing and also trying to learn more about African spirituality and my Ghanaian heritage. Um, at that point, I hadn't been back to Ghana since I was 12 um, because I moved out of my family home and I was 17. And so I'd spent quite a long time away from my blood family and hadn't been back to Ghana. And so I think like, like most diaspora do, you try to understand sort of the culture and history of, of the place that you come from. And that led me to reading a lot about colonialism and climate. Um, and that, again, was like that moment in Ireland where I was like mind blown. I was like, I knew these two things existed separately but I always felt that climate was a white issue. And basically what that meant was um, people kind of shoving down your throat that you should go vegan. And that's like how it felt to me. And when I was reading these papers and books and articles that were coming from human rights activists, that were coming from indigenous communities, that were coming from cultural historians, that were coming from... um, you know, lands right defenders. And it was filled with a lot of emotion and um, a lot of humanity. Um, that really struck again a chord inside me of, of 
seeing that the work I was doing with racial justice could could now be crafted in a way that it brought both my love for the natural world and my love for I guess justice issues or advocating for justice issues together um and I guess kind of the rest is history after I graduated from my um undergrad I just wanted to find a place where I could use my skills in STEM um for the environment um I I didn't I didn't have a sort of environmental an academic environmental background so I thought the best way in was with the skills that I already had um and that led me to my current PhD program which looks at the intersection of technology and ecology and then I just had to like mess it up a little bit more and add the sociology in and the justice issue because I couldn't leave that behind and I yeah really wanted to see what happens at the intersection of ecology technology and um culture and sociology and justice um so yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> that's that's really interesting thank you so much for sharing all of that and I really like how I, I like what you said about how um that idea that you went to that climate march and then you felt that wasn't for you and that's kind of what pushed you to then find your community and find what you were really um interested in and wanted to work with which I think is so, we see it so much in, in the climate space that people feel like, or like, especially when you're new to it, you kind of feel like there's one way of, you know, being an activist or even just like helping. And actually there's not, and there's many, many different approaches and angles. And I think we, it's even more powerful when everyone um, approaches it from their perspective and what really matters to them. Um I, th- I think that's really important. And I think that that's something that the movement is still struggling with. And I think that we've maybe got to a point where people admit that everyone doesn't feel the same about certain actions and that we need happy people in the movement. We need passionate people in the movement and we need people who are really rooted in purpose. Otherwise, we're going to lose people very quickly. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's acknowledged but I still don't think that we've got to the point where that's something that's embraced or that people have the ability to embrace the tools with which to embrace and I think that that's going to be a really important part of you know building capacity within the movement is to be okay with other people being different and having different skills and different passions and not trying to um assert that there's one way to do things um because I think that's quite confusing for people to hear come as you are bring the skills that you've got and then when they get into spaces it's actually not super comfortable to be yourself um or or it's harder to find the ways in which you can um make impact because one way is kind of venerated and uplifted and others are sort of hidden um mm-hmm. so I think that's really exciting because I think it means that we can just continue to bring more and more people in um and show them that kind of what they're already doing has the capacity to become a climate role or a climate action or a climate job um and that we don't need to sort of discard ourselves or discard our passions or yeah abandon our true selves in order to be part of the movement and I think that's really important Mm-hmm. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Thank you for sharing that. I want to come back to the climate 
justice um, aspect of your work a bit later. But first, I wanted to ask you about bioacoustics and if you could explain a little bit more about your work with bioacoustics and how listening to the sounds of nature helps us understand our impact on the environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, bioacoustics is kind of the central technology that I'm using in my PhD. Um, and I guess it's known more widely as a conservation technology. Um, also, some people call it part of the Internet of Trees. Um, and so bioacoustics is basic, basically Shazam for nature. Um, and I really like that phrase. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> I think I saw it in an article somewhere um, before. And I was like, yeah, that is exactly what it is. And I remember before I saw that article, I was talking to my husband about how yeah basically it's like shazam and i found that to be a really kind of easy way for people to understand what bioacoustics is um essentially we use um small acoustic sensors that have microphones in them and they get placed within the forest and record forest sounds so pretty much most of the species that are good indicators for biodiversity or forest health make sound bird species monkeys small mammals um they all emit loads of sound and forests are very noisy places beautifully noisy places um and the kind of field of bioacoustics has existed actually since like the 20s um more formally since like the 60s and people would just go and listen with their ears and note down all of the different species that they heard and, and um you know then analyze that for ecological studies but now with machine learning and with these automated sensors, which you can leave in the forest and program for days or weeks and even months, we now have access to a lot more data, which means we can see a lot more better into the lives and behaviours of animals in the forest. So um, just take, for instance, some of the work that I've done. We had sensors deployed in, in the forest for um, three weeks and so and for 24 hours so that's like it was technically like 18 days um but constant recording um from dusk to dawn um and then you use machine learning algorithms to do various different things um some people are interested in a specific species maybe it's a rare species um which if you're an ecologist and you're going into the forest you know in normal working times maybe you miss them you can't you'd have to be walking around the forest and all parts of the forest uh, at the same time to try and catch them. But uh, with the sensors, you can dot them, you know, and, and, and sample across a large area. So then you train machine learning algorithm to find that specific species within all of the recordings. And that allows um, ecologists to inform conservation because they can see, okay, this species is going through this route in the forest or they're only in this specific area in the forest. Let's go and see what's happening on the ground is this a healthy um, kind of environment for that species? How can we conserve it? How can we extend this um, habitat for that species? Other people are interested in sort of multi-species um, kind of investigation. So understanding what species are more abundant and what species are less abundant and where are they habiting in the forest and why? And is this, is this normal? Is this, is this, does this line up with the baseline? Does it not? Um, how is anthropogenic activity impacting um, the sound patterns? So are we hearing 
decreased animal activity when there's chainsaws blaring or when there's gunshots going off. Um, people are using them to yeah track gunshots and understand sort of how elephants are being hunted. Um, I mean, I could literally go on. Uh, basically, any any ecological question that you have about vocalizing animals, um, not just on land but in water as well, um, you can do with bioacoustics. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's super interesting. <laughs> I could also listen to you for hours because I think it's so exciting. And as you're saying, there's so many different um, yeah, aspects of it. And I guess ways these technologies are being used and it is super exciting. Something else that I also heard about, um, I don't know if you could speak to this a little bit, is this idea that it's been shown that we can also help nature heal by playing back recorded sounds of healthy ecosystems into places that may have been degraded is that something that um yeah maybe you could just quickly explain and then I don't know if you've had any experience of that that you'd like to share as well yeah I mean I haven't had any direct experience with this um but I have read about researchers who are using nature playbacks um so that would be maybe there's a species that um is native to a, a certain environment but that environment has been degraded and they've tested using big large speakers to um play intermittently those species sounds to kind of lure them it's kind of a trap really to lure them back into those environments um and I guess the hope is that if those species think there are more of them in a certain area then they might meet more of each other because they're all being sort of um Mm -hmm. lured back into that environment and hopefully establish that as a as a breeding ground or as a nesting site um but yeah I'm not an, I'm not actually an ecologist so I think that's definitely yeah an ecologist would definitely explain that a lot better but that's kind of um I guess an intro to what that work is doing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. okay amazing something else that I wanted to ask is instinctively there seems to be a contradiction between technology and nature and we're often told to look away from our screens and go spend time in nature away from technology to reconnect with ourselves Um, so I wonder if you could speak maybe a little bit about your perspective on that intersection between technology and nature in your work but also on a personal level. Yeah I think I'll also extend that question to technology also being seen to be at odds with people um mm-hmm. as nature and I bring that up because I think it's really important to add the context that my work is done in a critical and justice-centered way and so whilst I just described you know the technical aspect of it actually most of my work is sitting in a small wooden church in the forest community that I work with and having conversations with community members that's probably like 75 percent of the work that I'm doing whilst I'm in the forest and the actual collection of the data is like 25% of that time and that's really important because yeah technology can be at odds with nature and with humans definitely um and and that's kind of what motivated my work um kind of looking at it from two ways first to find those harms what are those harms and and what are the critiques of tech in spaces um, that are being conserved and with people who are living in these environments? What are the harms? But also then what are the possibilities? How might community members kind of um, adapt and develop 
technologies for their own benefit and for the benefit of the forest that they live in. And that's that's really what my work's about. And so it might seem like like taking technology to a very remote forest community to protect that environment is really idiosyncratic and doesn't make sense. But it's been really wonderful to just learn so much from community members and see how they perceive the technology. And when the technology is imposed and when it's extractive, yeah, it's it, it, there's no way that can work. Um, and that unfortunately is the way that technology is usually framed and used. We, you know, people from the West see technology as a way to, you know, boost development and we want to scale it and make it big and make money from it and see it as some kind of massive industry. And that's not really how I see technology. I see technology as a really, really powerful tool. And technology is much more than just computers and screens. Um, Indigenous communities and local communities have technologies that don't even need wires, that don't need programming. And I think we need to expand our our, um, understanding of what technology is. Hearing is a technology. And I think that's what's really interesting about bioacoustics. Um, The ability to take in essentially just pulses of air, different air pressure, and for the human body to process them into signals. That is a technology. Um, And so my work with community is really looking at how, how technology can be in service of the natural world and of people. And what we found is that one, the ability to collect sounds of, of animals which are usually very, very good at hiding. I think people think that in forests you can constantly see birds and monkeys, but they actually are very good at hiding. They don't come out very often, which means that community members hear a lot of the species, but have never seen them before. And what the machine learning algorithms allow us to do is to basically make visual representations of all of the sounds that are happening in the forest. And then identify those species and um, annotate them with the images. And so it's another like process of knowing and of getting closer to their own forest. And so for them, it is a kind of knowledge experience. Um, But also we're now working on how we can use sound to create experiences for storytelling and for telling um, uh, the kind of cultural stories locally um, to engage a wider community to support their conservation work. Um, so yeah, it's really expansive. And I think that when you see technology as a tool and see it as something to be kind of DIY'd and taken apart and like reassembled and used in a very like, um, oh, I can't remember the word I'm trying to say, but kind of to manipulate it for nature and manipulate it for people, then it's really, really exciting. Um, and, and that's kind of what my work is trying to do. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, I love that. It is um it is inspiring to hear you talk about it in that way because you're right that we often paint this very negative picture of technology, especially when, as you're saying, we put it um in contradiction with nature and with people. And it's like this dichotomy. But actually, what you're saying is that if you if we use it in service of enhancing our perception of the natural world and our relationship with nature, it is actually, yeah, it's really, it, I had a smile listening to you just because I find it really exciting. <laughs> so. I find it really exciting. And I think that when, I also think that technology is one of those things that 
the media prey on mm. and maybe um, technologists themselves aren't always super good at explaining what it is that they do. So there always lies this sort of mystique around it, this mystery, and, and it can be um, kind of blown out of proportion. It can either be the thing that's going to save the world or the thing that's going to kill the world. And that's kind of the two extremes and there's never any in between. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the more we build like a cultural li- um, literacy for understanding how technologies work and what technologies are, um and how they embed bias and how they can be harmful but also all of the exciting things that they can do i think once that hype comes down to just a normal level of reckoning with what it is that we have before us just like a pen you know has so much possibility in it you don't know what you're going to write or what you're going to draw that's kind of the same thing with technology and i think it's up to us to shape it in positive ways which is why sociology is so important because the way in which we interact with each other and we interact with the world can easily be embedded into technology, both for the benefit and uh, for uh, in an in, and both in a negative way as well. So um, there's loads of potential there for both good and bad, um, and they will invariably happen at the same time. There will be people who will misuse technology and conservation technologies, and there will be people communities who appropriate it for their own use and that will be beautiful and I think it's making less of the former and more of the latter that will be really exciting mm-hmm. wow love that I we're almost at time but I really wanted to touch on this as well so um your thesis focuses on conservation justice and collaboration with local communities so I wonder if you could maybe tell us a little bit about how you decided to address this I mean you said a little bit at the beginning but maybe if you if there's something more you want to share around this and also what you mean by participatory conservation work Mm -hmm. yeah so I knew when I applied for this program that I wanted to work on forests and I wanted to work with people and understand that intersection I didn't know I was going to work with bioacoustics. That came later um, when I was just sort of bowled over and amazed at, at its existence. Um, but I I really, I was aware of the fact that local communities are often overlooked or harmed in the process of conservation as a result of colonialism and the neo-colonial approach to, to conservation that we have that sees forests as places that should be wild and empty of people um and 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 that is neither a reality and it hasn't been a reality uh in the last hundred years or the last thousand years uh people have been living in forests and it's a sort of colonial concept of you know terra nullius that that the land is empty and and should sort of um be used at the at, at um at the leisure of the global north um, whether for extraction or for conservation. Um, and so, I, yeah, I, I really wanted to focus on that intersection and to advocate for a different way. And so, yeah, that's kind of how the participatory conservation comes about. I think more accurately, my work is um, participatory design, just because I'm not a conservationist, I'm a technologist. And so um, my work would come under participatory design, which sort of describes the ways in which we work collaboratively with communities to build um, and deploy technologies within environments. Um, at least that's what that's what my work is. Participatory design is much, much wider and sort of about all technologies and how humans are involved in the design of those technologies. But with my work, 
basically the community is involved in literally every aspect um in in my first field work I didn't put up any census for about eight weeks and spent all of those eight weeks just talking with community members um, conducting workshops allowing them to interrogate the sensors to take them apart to put them back together again to practice putting them out themselves because they're really abstract you know and they are they can be interpreted as surveillance um, tools and they can be used as surveillance tools and so part of my work was making sure that we interrogated like every single edge and corner of the sensors and of the work that we were going to do and of the data that would come out of it to a point where community members felt like now we can appropriate this we're gonna like we want to use this now we can see how we want to uh make 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 use of this of this tool um and then you know deciding where we put the sensors and how long we put the sensors out for and what we're recording and what kind of algorithm I should use and what kind of result do we want and what should we focus on and what should the design of the tool look like and like pretty much everything is a conversation um um apart from kind of the coding and stuff that I do when I get back home um but everything in the field is um collaborative and doesn't happen if community members don't want it to and I think that um I don't think that should actually be that special like I don't understand like it kind of shouldn't be a whole field in itself um because sensors are embodied environmental data is embodied it's not just something that ends up in a data base without anyone you know putting in effort the the the, the forest that I work in is mountainous and it takes a lot of bloody work to get those sensors strapped up into the trees, like basically rock climbing up like vertical drops in the mountain. It's it's labor, it's labor. And so if community members are engaging with that, it should be seen as labor. Um, and I think there's a disconnection really from technologists and the data that they work with. And so that's kind of yeah, how how I'm using participatory methods. It's to always be questioning at every step of the research what would community members want from this what would they not want from this how would they want this to look like and then we do that Mm -hmm. okay awesome wow thank you for sharing that um we're gonna stop here because we're um out of time but um if people if listeners want to learn more about your amazing work and follow you maybe on social media can you share uh where where's the best place to um dig deeper if they're interested (laughs) um you can follow me um on instagram or basically all social media at climbing color um spelled the english way um, and I don't know when this podcast is going to go out, but I'll actually be talking all about bioacoustics and conservation um, in a TED talk next month. Um, I don't know if this will come out before then. Um, so that will be another way. Uh, and if it comes out after, I can send you the link. Um, <laughs> yeah. And yeah, perfect. Yeah, I think that's probably most of the places you can hear from me for. Oh, you so um, subscribe to my newsletter. Um, that's actually probably the best thing. Um, so yeah, that's climbing color at Substack. Uh, yeah. Okay, awesome. And yeah, I don't know the exact release date yet, but I'll include either the link to the tickets to the TED Talk or um, the recording if there's one. Oh. And that's super exciting. So congrats again on that one. It's very cool. And um, I'll definitely be listening to it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Oh, well, thanks so much for having me. And I hope you, yeah, I hope it all goes well with um, the recordings and editing and all of the stuff. 
Thank you and thank you as well. I really enjoyed the conversation and I'm sure the listeners will as well. So thank you for your time. Thank you, listeners. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you can, please don't forget to share the episode around you as this really helps the podcast. You can also message me on Instagram at Why We Care Podcast if you have any feedback or thoughts. It's always lovely hearing from you. See you next week. Thank you for caring and sending you lots of love.